Praise the Lord. I'm so glad I serve a live Christ and not a dead Muhammad. <laughs> Hallelujah. Just briefly for those who don't know me, I'm Ed Trout, husband of one wife, three children, nine grandchildren. I live in San Antonio, Texas. I was born in Cape Town. I'm a first generation of a German Jewish family that exiled the Holocaust. And I got born again when I was 13. I heard the gospel when I was only 10 at school in Friedrich Primary School from a little lady called Auntie Sunny. She was a child evangelist for the older generation that might remember her from England. And she came to schools and told us about Jesus. And I was enthralled. Being Jewish, she knew how to hook this little person because she would give coins out after the story. <laughs> for questions that she asked, you got answers right. And she got, those years, we got a tiki. Pell, do you remember tikis? That was, you could buy a lot of candy with a ticket those years, so I was hooked. God that loved me and that money, i got to know more about that. And I did, and I'm grateful for the Lord for saving my soul. I'm grateful I have eternal life, but I'm a hundred times more grateful for the ongoing relationship I enjoy with the Lord. He's the most wonderful friend, Father, Lord, Savior, lover. There's no one like Him. Amen. Nobody. All right, so just briefly, I have my newest book out on interpreting dreams available to you. I teach everyone dreams every night. God does speak in dreams from Genesis to Revelation. I've laid out patterns of how to find the pattern in your life of dreaming, whether it's literal or, or figurative, how to recognize whether it's for yourself or someone else, how to recognize the language of what the dreams are. And then I even have a dictionary at the back to help biblical patterns to show you how to find throughout the Word of God. God expects us to understand symbolisms. This book is a good reading. I wrote it because I've spent an entire year working on this because people really have a desperate need to interpret dreams. And they keep asking me, and I want them to get it for themselves. Let them teach them how to do it. Yes, that's what I'm saying. I do have other material back there, good, good teachings on, and uh, whole uh, books on prophesying, how to prophesy, and all those kind of things. So, but this morning I want to teach to you, if you don't mind turning your Bibles, the book of John, chapter 10. Johannes wirfst the 10 in it once was in the first things that he learn gegeer, and I think the tweede dienst moet is Afrikaans now praat. Afrikaans is eindelijk my huistaal, nog nog steeds, al is ek 22 jaar in Amerika, ons praat toch Afrikaans by die huis, hulle sê ek praat nou Afrikaans met een accent, ek is half geskok daar oor, want ek was een kofsie, ek het mis in die tijd van van Bloemfontein geswaad, en daar is goed goeie Afrikaans gepraat, elke geval. All right, so did you understand all that, Pastor? I'm not sure if you did. Follow me. Your wife can, I know she can. Say, it's not even for us. All right, the book of John, chapter 10 and verse 22 reads like this. Then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. Just for you Gentiles, very quickly, we have seven feasts that are given to us from the Jews. And for those who don't understand, <clears throat> Jesus said, and I believe everything he said, and I follow his words more than anybody's words. He said that a teacher of the law who, who embraces the kingdom of God is like a man who from his house takes the old and the new treasures. And so we have a lot of treasure still in the old and values of principles and teachings. We don't scrap the things from the Old Testament. They are great value to us. Do you understand? We don't, we're not under the law. We are free of grace, but we take all the treasure together. Can you? Yes, good. Now, the seven feasts that we have as Jews, the three of them are around the 
Passover, Pascha, and of course we have Shaviot, which is Pentecost, and then of course the Tabernacles and so on. But this feast that Jesus went to was not any of those. It wasn't even listed in the, in the Bible at all to this day. This feast came just shortly before Jesus came. It was 200 years before Christ came that the Syrians came and took over Jerusalem and invaded them and dominated. And the, this particular Syrian king uh, allowed them to worship God in the temple, but the son violated the temple completely with the different gods from Zeus and sacrificing pigs and such like. They upset the Jewish nation terribly and they revolted a man called Matthias with five sons, led a revolt, and of course he died in the revolt in some, I think 167 years before Christ. They finally got rid of all the Syrians and got back the temple. Going to this ruined, defiled temple, they were looking to light the menorah. And a menorah is a seven candlestick uh, holder that, has, that is symbolic, that actually holds little oil wells, not candles, which was burned seven days a day, 24 hours a day, which is symbolic in the temple of God's presence for all nations. And they were to keep it a very purified oil, and so when they looked through all this trouble, they found the menorah and they wanted to light it just to, uh, significantly. And they found some, by some miracle, after all these years of being defiled the temple, they found a little bit of purified oil just left over. So they poured it in and they lit it. They expected it to at least burn for one day maybe or half a day. And it burned full eight days. It was a, they called the miracle of light. And that's what this festival is about. And of course then they, they built a a menorah with nine branches. Eight was the days that it burned, and the ninth is to celebrate this whole thing. It's, you might know it as Hanukkah. It's the same time as Christmas. So when you see Hanukkah and Happy Hanukkah again, understand what they're celebrating is the revival, renewal of the temple and God's purposes and kingdom. And so Jesus was celebrating this in the temple in Jerusalem. There's only one temple. There are many synagogues. Synagogues like a church, and it was much more relaxed than a temple. There was no sacrifices made. There, there was someone always teaching. The rabbi, rabbi would teach, and they'd sit in a uniform around and learning all they can, even discussing sometimes certain things in the synagogue, but not a temple. temple had a structure given by God and a certain pattern. And of course, in the time of Jesus, we had Herod's temple, the second era temple. Temple. The first era is Solomon. The second was Herod. Herod was a master builder, the one that was so paranoid when Jesus was born. He tried to kill all the boys in, in Bethlehem, stopping Christ being born. He was also trying to befriend Caesar and built an enormous amount of buildings at the Caesarea at the sea. And of course, he built, of course, Masada. You may have heard of Masada. He, he was a very paranoid, but a great, great builder. And he, he wanted to raise the temple and make it much bigger and more visible. So he built what's known as a temple mount, a whole platform uh, that, that he built. And so what happens is when you go from, this, from the city of David's, which is the whole castle area up, up towards the temple, it's always upwards, higher, there's a whole series of stairs with uh, little mikvahs, which are little baptismal fonts. Of course, baptism is not Christian, it's actually Jewish. Christians adopted it as a symbol, symbolic thing of, con you do constantly get baptized, a cleansing process, a mikvah, you go in one side of the wall, you come out the other side and you cleanse before you go up the temple. And so I'm going very fast and brief, this is all stuff you should know, I'm sure you're all well read and know all these things. <clears throat> Especially if you're Jewish. Anyway, and then once you've done the purification, you go up. It was a spiritual thing to go up these stairs through the three different gateways and going in and two coming out. And as you come on the Temple Mount, you have the Solomon's Porch. And those are all those little arches. And that's where you find Jesus now. And that's why I'm telling, describing this. I have reason for telling you all this to give you an understanding of what we're going to head towards today. And it was winter. 
wasn't warm. It gets very cold in Jerusalem sometime. Jerusalem is, <clears throat> uh, how would I do it in your language now? It's 2,900 feet, about 1,000 meter, just less than 1,000 meter high above sea level. That's, the, that's Jerusalem. And we get snow at times and it gets very cold in winter. And this is winter. It's the time of Christmas. So it was in winter. And Jesus, verse 23 says, was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. Now you must understand Jesus had an assignment. His assignment wasn't just to die, it was to establish the kingdom. And so the way to get to, to reach the kingdom to the existing Jews, it was for, he was called to the lost tribe, of, to the lost tribe, lost Israel. Israelites who were not serving God, they were not on fire. That's what he was called to, and he made it known that. And here he so when there was ever any kind of feast, he headed towards the temple. And it wasn't getting in the bus and the train or a taxi. No, my goodness. It was days walking there. It was always a job to get to this temple. And so he would go, because that's where the significant spiritual people would gather at the temple. So here was a place for him to preach the kingdom and to talk about who he was. So he was there and the Jews gathered around him in verse 24 saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, because they are expecting by this time, just that you all understand, because you need to understand your Bibles, what, when some things you read, what they mean to you. At that time, it was a very oppressed nation. Not only had they, by their own fault, asked for a king, they were already paying tithe to the church. Now they had to pay taxes to kings that they asked for. Now they have to pay more tax to a nation that's inv invaded them. The Romans have taken over the whole Mediterranean. They are extremely powerful. They, they have powerful fleet of, of ships, a powerful fleet, or armies, huge armies that are very powerful. And to give you an example, when this uh, Pontius Pilate, the, the governor, came in, there was a revolt in one city, and he, just, he killed 6,000 Jews in a short time, and it was such a, a tremendous shock to the nation. They were dominated by these Romans. So they were tearing up their streets, making big flag for their fag stones for their chariots to go and they, uh, they sell the little hot dog stands of all the unkosher foods and everything it was really nasty for them to have to live and subject themselves a nation under God have to become so carnalized and so carnal of people around them and so they're looking for David they prophesying they prophesying that a David's coming another King David another king to lead them to deliver them from the hands of the oppressors and so they're waiting for this deliverer to come but they didn't understand that this David wasn't one to help than just for one decade, for one generation, for 100 years, but rather for an eternity. They couldn't understand this David, son of David, was that amazing. And so he said, how long will you keep us? Are you the one that we've been prophesying? Are you the Messiah? Are you the helper? Are you the Christ? And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you didn't believe, he said to them. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. Sheep follow the shepherd. My sheep listen to my voice. My sheep know my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can take you out of God's hand, but you're free to leave. No one can snatch you, but you can just go. You're freedom. Don't, don't go. Please don't go. My Father has given them to me. He's greater than all, so you, he, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones. They picked up stones, and they wanted to stone him. 
But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? Pretty strange thing. You've seen miracles, experienced miracles. Don't deny it as miracles, but you want to stone him. We are not stoning you for any of these, they replied, but for blasphemy because you are a mere man claiming to be God. So Jesus very well read in the scriptures, of course, and knew the word so well, age of 12, in the temple, not in the synagogue, in the temple with the highest learned people. He was sitting there teaching them for hours and hours when his parents were looking for him. And Jesus answered them, it is not written in the law, I have said you are gods, if you call them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, of course, because now he's appealing to their understanding of the law. What about the one whom the Father set apart as the very, his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I'm God's son. Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe in me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that I and the Father are in me and in the one. Let the miracles speak for themselves. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Understand they were trying to kill him frequently. He was a real threat to them, and he always escaped until, listen to me, until it was time. He said, nobody takes my life, I give it. So when it was time in the Garden of Gethsemane, he waited for them, and he asked, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus, I'm he, take me. He gave, me. he gave himself. Here, he was not his time, and he understood the time. In our lives, it's good for us to recognize the time, because the devil barks loud and threatens you, but it's not your time. He can do nothing. He can make all the noise he wants. And, you, and so then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed. And many people came to him and they said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Now, I have to sketch this. I'm, trying to, I'm headed towards a point and I want you to understand and visualize this thing. Jerusalem is about 1,000 meters above sea level. The place he went to now is at the Jordan going into the Dead Sea, which is literally 300 meters below sea level. So to get there, you'd go down the old the old Jericho Road, and it would take six to eight hours to walk where he went. And he literally left Jerusalem to go to the quiet desert where there's a river, and there he was preaching, and many people got converted. He had a really all good camp meetings going on, but he got out of the direct fire of these Jews trying to kill him. He was just being cautious and wise. And now what I'm trying to teach you is Every person that Jesus met had saw him differently. He had so many people that he encountered, and I always wondered how they viewed him. I was very interested to see people involved in him. The more I study, I study frantically, and I say that word cautiously, the Gospels trying to, because I follow Jesus. I don't follow Paul or John. I, le I learn from them, but I follow Jesus. So everything I want to know, he either tells me or he lived it for me. I, I look for always what would Jesus say, what would he do, how would he behave. That's my measuring stick in my life. And I learn from the other disciples, but he's my, the one I'm, I learn from. And he had certain patterns in his life and ministry. And for example, just to give you one example in my studies, we have four Gospels. And not Matthew, not Mark, and not John, who were typical Jews there. Rick did any talking or reference to women at all. Luke, who came from Greece, he wasn't one of the same culture. He became a Jew, then became a Christian, and he was a medical doctor. He's the only one that refers to the women the way he does. 
And I've learned now that women were always God's secret weapon. For you guys that don't know what I'm talking about, let me explain to you. In Luke 8, 8, there's reference to three women, besides all the other women that doesn't refer to, which he says, and many more. They were wealthy. One was Mary Magdala, who came from a big city. She was wealthy. She was older than Jesus. All the disciples of Jesus were younger than him. He was 30 years old. They were all younger. We always visualize John and Peter as these rotund men with big beards. But Peter was about 24. He was just newly married. John was about 18 or 19. The young kids, there were young people following him. Mary was an older woman that had seven demons cast out of her, and she was wealthy. So she's either a widow or she was just in business for many years, and she had such a dedication to Jesus that she was the one that brought the spices to his funeral, if you understand, that's actually a wife or mother's job to do that where someone dies, and she brought it. She was dedicated to Jesus and his ministry. The Catholics' references show her as an apostle of churches and having started and influenced churches all her life until she died. She was phenomenally involved. So none of that gets ever spoken about. And the other woman, Herod had a whole palace right there at Tiberias because he was escaping, could not stand Pontius Pilate. They fought all the time until Jesus, and they became friends because of Jesus. And Pilate was a real, the son of the one that was such a good builder, was a rough rider. Boy, he had all kinds of difficult things going on in his life, and he was just a... Jesus called him a jackal. He was so cunning and sly, and he was, he was a womanizer, and Lord knows what else. His housekeeper of this wealthy palace, his wife, Joanna, was also a supporter of Jesus. And so we have all these women named, and they don't name them in the other books because the women weren't important enough. But it's a great loss because God always uses women significantly. Are you listening to me? Hallelujah. All right, so getting back to where I was now. So I'm trying to show you today, looking through the life, eyes of different people, I'm looking at one particular family very close to Jerusalem. Now, it, they, so you understand he left Jerusalem and he went down quite a ways to the Dead Sea area, desert area. And where he was in Jerusalem, if you go down, to, to go out of the eastern side, the gate, beautiful, you have the Kidron Valley. There's three valleys there. The Kidron Valley is the biggest, the most beautiful. And you, that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And you go up to the Mount of Olives, and right there is, on the hill is another town called Bethany. And in Bethany was this where Jesus often based himself. He built a relationship more than someone he just met or knew. He built a close friendship with a family. And now a man in verse 1 says, named Lazarus, was sick. And he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and sister Martha. And Mary, whose brother Lazarus now is sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped the feet with hair. Mary was really prominent, and Jesus liked her. She was such a sweet lady. She was very spiritual, supposedly. And she, of course, Martha, her sister, was rebuked because she was cooking so hard in the kitchen, she was making babuti for about 5,000 people. And, and there was Mary listening, not participating, all the work she was doing by herself. So the sisters went, sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Lazarus is sick. Now, how did they send word? Well, they sent someone down to go see him. It took a while to get there. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it's only to God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So right away, he's got puts it in perspective. God always puts your situation in perspective if you listen. It's amazing how your incident, my incident, our problem is always the worst. We always see everything so bad until someone puts it in perspective for us. I had no shoes and complained until I found someone who had no feet. 
Do you understand? You get things in perspective, and the devil will, will, will color, sketch, and magnify things to get you to react. But when I prayed for this nation recently, the Lord told me that all this upheaval, uprising was a small group, really insignificant, making a lot of noise, and the purpose of it has always been spiritual. The devil is trying to distract the church and put fear. If you can replace your faith with fear, he can make you less powerful and effective. He wants the church to get away from the ultimate call. God raised the church up in this nation to speak and sound the trumpet throughout the Africa continent. It is a, it is a gospel call. It's our job to be shine, like China's from the southern continent, part of the continent is God's work. And if he can just distract us and get us full of fear and anxiety, oh, we've got to leave, this country's bad, and all that nonsense, don't get into that lies. What's the worst that can happen? They can send you home early. That's the worst that can happen. The devil can threaten me with death because I know what's going to happen. Where he's, I'm going where he can't. It's real to me. You should have no fear. The fear is from the devil, not from God. Right? So he, they get word, Lazarus is sick, and he, Jesus tells him, don't worry, she won't die. So he says, and Jesus loved Martha and, and sister Lazarus. There it says in the Bible, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He was very fond of them. They weren't... He had a lot of people he prayed for, ministered to, did all kinds of great things for. But this, this family was special to him, and he didn't hurry. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed. Two more days. He wasn't stressed about going. So often we pray, and we expect because we go to church for 30 years now, and we tithe and we faithful members, that we have a right to expect that God gets a little, needs a little bit of hurry there. Not to, I understand that those weak Christians don't get your help, but I'm faithful. You need to help me. I'm one of your kids. I belong to you, Lord. I, I expect you to respond. You have, you have in your subconscious a demand in your heart because you've been faithful to the Lord and trusted Him all these years, and you're believing Him now. You expect God to come through for you. You're almost frustrated if he doesn't, because he should. And this is what happens now. Stay with me. And so, uh, so when he, but yet when he heard that he was sick, he stayed there two more days. Then the disciples said, let us, let us go back to Judea. And, but Rabbi, they said, after two more days, he said, let's go. He said, Rabbi, a short time ago, Jews were trying to kill you. And you want to go back there? He answered, and this is what he told them. Are there not tw 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks the day will not stumble, for he sees by the world's light. And it says, when he walks by night that he stumbles and has no light. And as he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. So he's telling about the day. What it means is, when he is, God is our light. We are, he's the light of the world. We walk in the light. Do we, yes or no? Yes. The, Israel has a star on their flag. It's called, the, you call it the Star of David. It's actually a Mogan David, which means the shield of David, but it's six points. It symbolizes the sun. The Israelites are the children of the sun. The Islam has a sickle or a moon and a star that are the children of the night. All the sin and all darkness, all wicked things happen at night. Even before the dawn was when Peter denied the Lord, but it was still before the light came. So you understand when you have a watchman at night on the walls, they're interceding. It's always as the earth's turning, there always should be watchmen praying. We need prayer warriors all the time, first thing in the morning. Come on, guys, you know this stuff already by now. This is, this, is, this is old stuff. You should know all this already. You guys are prayer warriors already. We're going into a season of, of prayer and bringing down strongholds and taking back control spiritually of this nation. Do you hear what I'm saying? This church, God's put his hand on this family, and we're going to get up and do it. We just need two people to agree. We've got a few more than two, right? 
Okay, so then he said, uh, he said, but if he sleeps, he'll get bitter. Jesus said, he's not speaking of his death. He spoke, he's fallen asleep. In verse 14, so he told him plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, oh my goodness, I was glad I was not there. What a horrible thing to say, Jesus. He's glad he's dead. And, you, and for my sake, you're glad. That man didn't just die easily. He suffered. Why could you be glad about that? So that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, you remember Thomas, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go that we may die with him. <laughs> Thomas reminds me of Eeyore, you know, from Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Always whiny, complaining, negative. And, that he, and Jesus picks him. I, I don't get that he picks these disciples. It's strange. And you could have done a little better there, Jesus. Let me tell you. All right. That's my opinion. All right. On his arrival in verse 17, I'm trying to go as fast as I can, Jesus found that Lazarus had been dead already in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them. So they were very well, high-profile people. Many Jews came to comfort them. They were well-known. And when they, Martha heard that the, Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. In intimating, they both heard he was coming. But Mary, the spiritual one, stayed at home, and Martha ran to meet him. And then she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They were expecting him to come. She thought it was the least you could expect that you'd come and you do miracles for everybody else. We're not just everybody else. We are close to you. We expect you to come and take care of this. Right? And then she says in verse 22, But I know, not I believe, not I hope, I know, I know, that even now, when you pray, God hears you. What you talking, girl? When she said that, she opened the dialogue with Jesus. He says, you know that you'll rise again in the, th in the, in the resurrection, right? She says, yes, Lord, I know that the resurrection and he'll rise. I understand that. He said, you know that I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. When Peter said he's the Son of God, he rejoiced and got excited. Now, this woman that was peeling potatoes all the time in the kitchen he rebuked before, suddenly knows that he's the Son of God and has such confidence. Mary didn't even come. Martha is completely convinced that even now it's not too late. She's got, she knows he's dead. She said that she should have been here. She's blaming him in a way, but... But she's saying, I still believe now it's not too late. God's always got a purpose and a method and a way. He's always got a plan if you can trust him. Job said, even if you kill me, I'm still going to trust you. That devil wants you, to wants you to lose trust. When he's attacking you, when he does anything he does against you, he's not trying to steal your business, hurt your body, destroy your marriage, those things, and he attacks them, he's not interested in those things. What he's really focused on is your faith. What must I do to you to mess your faith? What must I do to you to weaken your faith? I must be able to find some place in you that you'll think God has forsaken you or doesn't love you anymore. There's got to be some way I can do this. So he's always attacking your faith. Every negative, fearful report, every way he can get you to get into a place of intimidation. Because when you believe God and have faith, you heard the song that the president sang. If we can believe, it didn't start out, if we just confess, if we can believe and pray. We need some believers in the house. All right. So... So, you know, now that she settled this, you think you say, well, come on, girl, let's go and get your brother out of that grave. No. You know what he does? He sits down. And he says, go call your sister. 
I would say, Jesus, can I just remind you why we're here? We're here to help Lazarus. I don't know why you're taking your time now, but could we just, could we have any conversation after? Let's get this thing done. What do you think? What do you say? Come on, Jesus, let's do it, right? No, he's sitting there, and now we have to go get Mary. So she goes all the way back, calls Mary, and she comes all the way there, and he's sitting there waiting. And so she says, you should have been here. My brother wouldn't have died. Same thing as Martha, except she didn't say, but I believe you for a miracle still. No. Her response was so negative and so disappointing that the response of Jesus was unlike that of Martha's. He responded to her, the Bible says he was deeply troubled in spirit. She'd been going to church every Sunday. She'd been filled with the word and yet she didn't get it. Martha at least got it. With all her difficulties, she got it. And so he says, where have you laid him? And of course she went to go raise Lazarus. But you can see the two girls, how they responded. Now, why I'm telling you all that, they had an expectancy of him because they were befriended with him. They saw him frequently and they had a real need. And they expected him to hurry it up. And it took so long and it was just a very difficult journey for them. And you wonder why, and there was so much going on because he was focused on his, on his task to bring the kingdom. And he got out of the way of the fire that were trying to kill him. So he got out of the way for a season, carried on preaching. And so he didn't just drop everything and run just to one family only. Sometimes we don't get God's ways because his ways are so much bigger and higher and there's so much more going on. We want God to do it right now and do everything, solve the problem immediately. He can do anything, it's true, but he's got a method and a time and a way. He could have come earlier and he said, no, I, I, let's not go now. He, he, he's going to, this won't end in death. That's what he said. He's got a plan. He knew this is going to be, he's got a security. And so God is in your life. For you, whatever situation you have, I want you to hold on to him and trust him that he was got, always got a plan, that he's got so many things he sees and knows from the end, from the beginning. He loves you so intensely. I haven't got words in any language I know to tell you how much he loves you. The devil wants to always try and bring it down and make you feel God's forsaken you and doesn't love you because your circumstance, you cannot measure God's approval by your circumstance. You're going to miss it very drastically. God's faithful to his word. And that's when faith really functions. In fact, Jesus often provokes you into a storm. He'll call you. He'll push you into a storm. He told the disciples, let's go to the other side. It was his idea. They could have avoided that storm had they just not obeyed him. But they obeyed him and they were in a storm. And all Christians always think that they're in a storm because they messed up, made a mistake, did something wrong. And that's exactly not true. They were in that storm because they did what's right. They obeyed him. And they ended up in a storm. And they forgot that he said, we're going to the other side. All they could see was a nasty storm. We're drowning. We're drowning. Don't you care? We're drowning. And he calms the storm and he says, you still have no faith. He expected them to weather that storm. He sent them into it. Storms are your friends. You're never going to see faith in your life or function in faith if you don't have a storm. Don't panic. Ons Afrikaners is baie te klaar as daar storm of a moeilijkheid kom. Ons moet behalf dit geniet en sê, kom, is dit die beste wat jy kan bring vijand? Hy kan beter as dit doen. Kom, nou poetie. We serve a powerful God. I hope I was able to teach you something. I'm trying to get through so I can prophesy quickly and get into the prophetic thing. I know you all want a word, every one of you. Lock those doors. No one leave. Thank you. 